Jackson, Joe, can, are you able, how many of you can make it? Okay, we got a, we got a feeding Jordan. Okay, so Lex, is your mic on? Okay, this is when things get intimate between us. He's going to touch me. <laughs> He's touching me. I can feel it. <laughs> How's that? Um, well, it's, I don't know. Is it okay? I think it's perfect. It was good for me. How is it for you? <laughs> I think it was as good for me as it was for you. <laughs> Whew, now we're blushing. <laughs> Ooh. Whoa. I don't know what to say, Lex. This has been a, a, a good and a bad start all at the same time. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, let's, should we blame Adrian for this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, and we'll tighten that. At least I don't have to touch you this time. No, that's, that's much nicer. <laughs> <laughs> you said you liked it. Uh, well, I'm going back yeah, on your I'm word. Just being I mean, polite. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> enough, enough. There's people covering their faces, <laughs> trying to get out, looking for the exits. This is on the internet, right? Yeah, it will be. It Aww. will be. But we've got some skills at cropping things. I'm glad out. I kept my coat on. That's all I can say. Okay, Lex and Joe and Jordan. Um, Lex, you're a friend of ours, lead uh, Jubilee. Uh, Inner City has been kind of where you've been at. How long have yeah, you been there in for? In Clough Street since uh, we planted in 2016. Okay, so yeah. a year after us. Okay. Amazing, hey? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're having a lot of fun. It's yeah, it's, it's a beautiful church. Um, and then, of course, you've got little Jordan here. Tell us just quickly about your convictions and, and how that all came about. Um, so uh, Joe's feeding the baby at the moment. So we've been uh, enjoying fostering little ones um, temporarily, and uh, this is our third, and they are delightful. People say, oh, it it's must be such a sacrifice to do the uh, first few months, but actually uh, much better than the toddler years <laughs> and uh, the teenage years and then the marrying years. So uh, we're, we're thoroughly enjoying, uh, and, and then also meeting some of the adoptive parents as well when they're embedded in a new family. It's a, just a wonderful thing to do. And it really is, is Joe's uh, prompting, but both of us are thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying the investment into these little lives, yeah. Wow, and it's just such a redemptive method of serving our society, yeah. right? Eh? And such a joy. I mean, I think the privilege and the joy that you, uh, you get from from these little ones is uh, outweighs uh, any sense of uh, cause or sacrifice or anything like that. So. Wow! And you said you guys are doing like a looking in kind of. Uh, we're going to do a, yeah. We're going to do like a fostering adopting Sunday where we're going to get some social workers that we've been working with, and then also some adoptive parents wow. who have their kids who are in our congregation anyway. Beautiful. Uh, in October, we'll be doing that. So we might send some spies over and learn oh, how, yeah, how that yeah. Sunday goes. Oh, well, we're learning ourselves. So yeah. I mean, it's a uh, yeah, oh, beautiful. Um, Lex is part of our kind of uh, partnering churches. Uh, we're part of a movement called Advance, and uh, it's just lovely to be able to partner together and to have you come Great. do our second installment of Relate. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for serving us, and uh, over to you. Great. Let's well, give him a round of applause. Or hello, something. everyone. <laughs> I'm very nervous of this now. I'm not going to try and lift it up again. You did. Um, yeah, so my subject is the Holy Spirit in Ephesus, looking at Acts chapter 18 and 19. So if you have a Bible on your phone or a real Bible in your hands, last week Roger 
uh, introduced the series um, by showing that the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform people's lives, whatever their previous worldview has been. Individual conversion is possible. And we saw how that if large numbers are converted, a whole city can feel the impact of that. We saw that, of course, in the Greek city of Ephesus. And although there was a backlash, you remember they were, there was a kind of a riot, but in time the church was established and there was a kind of culture shift. And the fact simply is that history shows us that where Christianity has been uh, culturally embedded, there's a shift, an ethical shift to what one might call human rights, compassion, good, uh, I was going to say good manners, but I mean, uh, Roger referenced Tom Holland, the historian Tom Holland's book, uh, Dominion, to illustrate that. But for most of us who've been brought up in Christianized contexts, these things seem normal. Human rights, the rights of women and children, uh, sexual consent, workers' rights, uh, health care, nurses, orders, hospitals, and so on and so forth. They're so normal that we think, you know, good people everywhere just uh, believe these things. They were always with us, but they weren't. They are the specific bestowals of a Christian worldview. And I think we're seeing that more and more. Not everyone is playing by the same rules. And then when, so that was last week, when, when Roger uh, invited me to preach, he said, look, you can take one of these elements of the Relate series from Ephesians, marriage, family, singleness, sexuality, church life, or you could do something on the Holy Spirit, and, uh, which he'd asked me to do before. And I think, actually, the shift from a pagan lifestyle to a Christian lifestyle is dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit and, of course, the authority of Scripture. The key to joyful and lasting change from your former lifestyle to a Christian lifestyle is a work of the Holy Spirit and is based on, of course, the authority of Scripture. Now, if I can speak personally, um, I lived quite happily in these former worldviews that Roger was outlining last week. I probably danced and moved between them at different times. I don't think I was ever a moralist quite, but... Um, you know, I was both a hedonist. Remember, the hedonist is the experience seeker or the thrill seeker, uh, and a nihilist who's the rule breaker. Um, no one in my circle of friends was a follower of Christ, uh, nor anyone in my um, family. Growing up, we never went to church. Why would you? Um, we didn't feel any need to go to church. Christianity, in a sense, was a kind of ornamental relic of the past, pleasant in its own way, um, but not really relevant for now. A little bit like, um, you know, the icing, the decorative icing on the top of your wedding cake, which you've kept as a memento. Uh, you can't quite bring yourself to throw it in the bin, but you would never dream of eating it. That's, that's how I viewed Christianity. It was a kind of decorative ornament from the past, not really relevant to today. And then, of course, the problem was that the God who didn't exist uh, 
did something that he wasn't supposed to do, which was that a friend of mine suddenly appeared claiming to have found the truth. So obviously that was wrong, but I had to engage with him and try and find out what was going on. So I said to him, look, you know, whatever books they gave you, you're not a bookish person, in, in brackets, you've been taken in by them anyway. Uh, let me have the books or whatever it was they gave to you to convince you. And he gave me, this was a stroke of luck on his part, the Gospel of John. Just a simple, slim, biographical sketch of the life of Jesus. The Gospel of John, the fourth of the four Gospels in the New Testament. And I began to read it very closely. And the reason that I began to read it closely wasn't because I got to a point in my life where, I, and this is nothing wrong with this, but for me, I wasn't like, oh, I need answers. Oh, if only there were answers. I was dancing around in these different worldviews, remember, and I actually was already a postmodern, was saying, well, it doesn't matter if there are questions, answers, whatever, let's just dance. Not that I was a dancer, but... Um, I'm talking theoretically. But, but I, I, so I'm reading the Gospel of John and I'm looking for the mistakes, which I, I was certain I would find. This is going to be easy. There, everyone knows the Bible's full of contradictions. This is going to be easy. So I'm looking for error. I'm looking for nonsense. I'm looking for contradictions, which I was sure I would find. And then I would go to him. I would convince him. He would come to his senses, repent and come back into the world, the real world, where he really belonged. But, as is absolutely obvious for the fact that I'm standing here talking to you now, something else happened that was unexpected. Basically, I won't tell my story, my story's for another time, but against all my expectations, I was drawn to the person of Christ. I mean, he really was quite extraordinary. And his words, the things that he said, no man spoke the way that this man speaks, were drawing me and kind of reaching into me. Have you ever read the Bible? The Bible's got hands. It reaches out of the book and it grabs you and it pulls you in. And that was a surprise to me. I was a little bit shocked at, at how robust and authoritative and attractive Jesus was. And more was going on than just reading and arguing with the book. And the, the beauty of a book, of course, in terms of dialogue, is it, it, it just says the same thing again to you. So you could disagree, but it just says the same thing again. Could it be that behind all of this, that the God who doesn't exist, who I know isn't there, is somehow reaching to me and somehow calling me so anyway, long story short, after a couple of weeks of further wrestling and reading, and I, I can't remember, but I think I read the other three Gospels as well, I surrendered. I, 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 I didn't have words, I didn't have Christian jargon, I didn't know anyone else apart from this guy. I wanted to become a disciple. I didn't have any Christian jargon, but my conversion itself was powerful. It was, it was dramatic. It was a turning from darkness to light, I had a definite, as, as I kind of prayed the prayer, you know, with this minister guy, I had a definite experience of the Spirit's cleansing power just after I had surrendered my life to Christ. I was kind of filled with a strange kind of light. Everything was changed, and, and I knew that it meant everything. 
I'd been, I'd been digging for error and for falsehood, and I stumbled on truth that I could hardly believe existed. I thought that I would find flimsiness, you know, the oh, Jesus and the disciples and the miracles. I thought I would find flimsiness, and to my astonishment, I hit something solid. I was digging for dirt. When I read that gospel, I was digging for dirt, and I found treasure I could hardly believe existed. The truth of God that just broke in upon my soul, unhappily, eagerly, I wanted to throw off the sins I'd been holding on to so tightly and so gladly. I wanted to throw it all off. I wanted to give up the nonsense and all of that stuff. A, a thankful devotion to Christ broke over my soul, which has never left me, because it's, it is true. It is true. And um, you know, this high, high privilege of, of being loved by Christ and being individually, personally called by Him to follow Him, to be His disciple, was astonishing to me. What a turnaround. The highest privilege a human being can experience is to know Jesus Christ personally calling you and inviting you to be one of his followers. Oh, says the psalmist, he has enclosed me behind and before and laid his hand upon me. Such things are too high for me. They are too wonderful. So I gave my life to Christ. And then about a month or so later, quite unexpectedly, I experienced what the prophet Joel spoke of when he said, when God says in that prophecy, I will pour out my spirit. I was, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. There was a pouring forth of God's power upon me and in me that was quite wonderful and that revealed to me both the holiness and the immensity of God. I've never struggled with doctrines about the sovereignty and the greatness and the almightiness of God because of this experience of being drawn in almost to the immensity of God. And it also showed me my littleness in relation to Him. He is God. This is like a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the result of all of those experiences together, of course, completely changed my view of the Bible. My view of the Bible completely changed. The very book that I dismissed as being irrelevant became for me the authoritative guide for what I would believe and how I would live, for belief and for behavior. And that's a key where we look at these other issues later in this series. And I guess what's at the core of it, the core of it is a happy surrendering to him and to his word. Whatever he says in his word is authoritative. That wasn't oppressive to me. It, it, it was even liberating. Even though I knew for me in my early 20s that this placed new restrictions and new boundaries 
on my behavior that I hadn't experienced before, but I wanted to live for him. You know this experience. You want to live for him, whatever it means. I want to, I want to live for him. And so that's how this works. And that's how this keeps working, a continued experience of being filled with the Spirit and a joyful surrender to His Word are both essential to the liberty, the contentment, and the perseverance of the Christian. They really are. And you and I need to receive the Holy Spirit in order to joyfully submit to His Word. It's not, we're not just Sartre, the existentialist, said we're just existing on a plane where there is only men. The, the, the moderns, the like Sartre, Camus, those guys, the existentialists, they regretted the absence of God. The fact for them that there was no God means we are forlorn. The postmodern doesn't care. Let's just party. Who cares about that stuff? We are not on a plane where it's just this opinion, that opinion, this church tradition, that church tradition. We want to come filled with the Spirit, surrendered in our hearts to Christ, to His Word, and learn from Him. That's the safest way to live, surely. And that's not unorthodox. That's not radical. That's just normal Christianity, isn't it? So, um, I think the other thing is believing and trusting that He's got our best interests at heart. So, to enjoy your Christianity, you need both the Word and the Spirit. And that's my introduction. And I've only got one point in this sermon, which really is to ask, when were you last filled with the Holy Spirit? That's the, that's the whole point of this message. Um, but I have broken it into sections. You'll be relieved. So first of all, then, the first disciples, because you have to, the first disciples in Ephesus, the first disciples in Ephesus. So the book of Ephesians, remember, is a letter. It's a letter written by Paul back to the Christians in Ephesus. So Paul had planted the church there following um, a prior visit by another Christian preacher-teacher called Apollos. Um, and So let's have a look at Ephesians 18, and there are little selections here. It's quite a lengthy passage. I'll read it quite quickly. Ephesians 18 from verse 19 onwards is really the beginning of, the, of, the, of Christianity in Ephesus. Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila came to Ephesus, and he, Paul, left them there, and he passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, obviously the Christians. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, so an African, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was proficient in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he was accurately speaking and teaching things about Jesus, being acquainted, though, only with the baptism of John. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples, the church, to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul came to Ephesus. So it's an unhelpful chapter division there because we're now halfway through this story. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. 
we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And he said, no, no, John's bap John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, Paul found some disciples. Now Luke tells us Paul had searched for them. So Paul is asking different ones where the believers are, and he found some disciples. He searched for them and found. Were they already believers, or did they give their lives to Christ when Paul arrived? Now, before I give you my view, I've given it already, really, in the reading, it's worth noting that whatever you decide about whether they were already Christian or not, the application essentially remains the same. Paul still, at a certain point, laid his hands on them to receive the Spirit. So even if you believe that they were non-Christians, there's still a very clear, if you like, running order. First, they're believing in Christ. Then they're getting baptized in water after believing in Christ. And then finally, Paul laying his hands on them for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And as usual, Luke, without any embarrassment whatsoever, records that the Spirit came upon them um, by their exercising the normative Christian gifts. And in Acts 19, which is years after Acts chapter 2, of course, it is tongues and prophecy. So these are just normal orthodox happenings in the New Testament. There's a three-step process there in Acts 19. Hearing and believing an accurate presentation that Jesus is the Christ. That's very important. That's already taken place. Luke is at pains to tell us that Apollos was accurately presenting Christ. Then they're being baptized in water following their conversion, uh, even though they've been baptized before, of course, and then being filled with the Spirit. Now, in referring to this phrase of Luke's disciples, I looked up some great scholars on this, better scholars than me, of course, and here are some examples. The ones that have nothing to do with Pentecostalism seem completely free of wanting to try and carefully... <laughs> so J.A. Alexander, writing in the mid-19th century, says, Finding unexpectedly on his first arrival certain disciples, not of Apollos or of John the Baptist, but of Christ, as the word always means when absolutely used, and as appears from the way in which Paul treated them. So that's J.A. Alexander. That's a Geneva commentary from the Banner of Truth series. John Calvin in the 17th century says, Luke records that on Paul's return, the church at Ephesus, so he's already calling it the church, was not only confirmed and increased, but was also provided with a miracle in that the visible graces of the Spirit were converged on certain new and inexperienced disciples there. The conclusion of the story shows that here Paul is not speaking about the spirit of regeneration. Now, regeneration is, is a technical term for the new birth, when you are born again, when you pass from death to life, Ephesians 2, when you, are, you come to life in Christ, you are regenerated by the Spirit. He is not speaking of the spirit of regeneration, but of his special gifts, which God distributed on those whom he pleased for the general edification of the church. Michael Eaton, late 20th century, 
fully aware of both the non-Pentecostal and the Pentecostal teaching on all of this, says, these disciples have believed in Jesus. When they answer, we've not even heard if the Holy Spirit is here, which is also a fair translation of that, because in Greek, literally, it's like, we have not heard the Holy Spirit is. And most of the translation says, I is means exist. They cannot mean, he says, we have not heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. No one could say such a thing if he or she knew anything of the ministry of John the Baptist. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit was one of the main themes of John's ministry. They do not know whether the promise that John gave has yet been fulfilled. Also, John spoke of the Spirit descending on Jesus, and that was the sign to him that he was the Messiah. So John had spoken of the Spirit. And not only that, as is clear from the section uh, that deals with the polis, these were Jews who knew the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has, has got many references to the Holy Spirit. So it is unlikely that they're just saying, oh, we didn't even know there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. There's such a being as the Holy Spirit. Finally, F.F. Bruce, mid-20th century and not at all fussed by the Pentecostal thing. Not, at that time, he was writing the 40s and 50s. Pentecostalism wasn't as widespread as it is now. By the way, you and I in the, in the global stats are considered to be part of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, even though I wouldn't consider myself a Pentecostal. Anyway, F.F. Bruce says this, Shortly after his arrival in Ephesus, Paul met a dozen men whose knowledge of Christianity was in much the same defective condition as Apollos' knowledge had been before he met Priscilla and Aquila. But that these men were Christians is certainly to be inferred from the way in which Luke describes them as disciples. This is a term which he commonly uses for Christians. And had he meant to indicate that they were, dis they were disciples not of Christ but of John the Baptist, he would have said so explicitly. At any rate, Paul's question did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, suggests strongly that he regarded them as true believers in Christ, but they profess complete ignorance of the Spirit. So of the several commentaries which I consult, and I've got quite a few now over the years, only John Stott, who was known as resisting Pentecostal teaching, took a different view from those, commentary, from those commentators that I've mentioned. But anyhow, as I said, the application remains essentially the same for us. Have you and I experienced this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that these Ephesians disciples experienced when Paul laid his hands upon them? That's the, my single point. That's the question. So that's the first point on disciples. Second point, our need of the Spirit. Um. So I've been in ministry nearly 40 years, which you can tell by the gray hair and the slightly tired appearance and the resistance to being touched by pastors. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm aware there are different views, and even in this room, there are differing views on the things of the Spirit, and that's actually okay. Nobody is suggesting that you can be born again and not have the Spirit indwelling you. We're all agreed. We're all agreed on that. If you're born again, the Spirit is in you. If you've been justified by faith in Christ, you've been regenerated by the Spirit, and God's Spirit has already worked on you, and irrespective of your feelings, 
he does indwell you. That's why Paul says Christ is in you. You know, the, the hope of glory. It's by the Spirit that Christ is in you. So we're agreed on that. So we don't need to, that's not what's under discussion. In, in that sense, the, the problem's actually removed. But you'd have to do a lot of crossing out in your Bible if, to, to escape the fact that we're often exhorted to be filled with the Spirit again that we are to receive the promise of the Father, that God's love can be shed abroad in our hearts, that we can experience foretastes of heavenly glory and joy unspeakable and full of glory. I mean, the, the New Testament is rich with these wonderful promises of joy in the presence of God, to taste and see that the Lord is good. So the question really becomes, do I want to be filled with the Spirit? Am I hungry? Is there a hunger in me to experience more of the Spirit in my life? And as we'd expect, this is everywhere in the New Testament. The Apostle John tells us, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. I mean, essentially, are you thirsty? Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And sure enough, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we read Peter and the others were all filled with the Spirit. It was a definite and powerful experience that caused them to rush out of the upper room into the streets and begin preaching Christ and Him crucified with kind of unstoppable power. This was a direct sense of God's power coming upon them. Jesus had promised, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And just before he ascended, he told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That, in a, in a sense, is a single sense, uh, sentence description of the whole of the book of Acts. This is what the book of Acts is about. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's a single sentence description of the whole of the book of Acts. And of course, that power that came upon them and their preaching of the gospel extended and grew. And through the book of Acts, like the word of God grew. The word of God grew. Yes, the gospel increased and influenced, and it reached Ephesus. It reached Ephesus. And Paul, when he gets there, says, hmm, 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 something not quite right here. And the first thing he does is a wise master builder wanting to lay good foundations in that church is to make sure, hold on, have you received the Spirit? Now, there's a difficulty with the two-stage argument that you may have heard before, the kind of classic Pentecostal argument. Historically, Pentecostal Pentecostalism has argued for a kind of two-stage Christian experience. First you're born again, then you're baptized in the Spirit. The phrase, by the way, baptism in the Spirit, you shouldn't be scared of. It was John the Baptist, and then Jesus uses it in Acts 
one. So we're allowed to use it because it's a Jesus phrase. But you were baptized in the Spirit, followed usually by speaking in tongues. That was the Pentecost thing. You get born again, baptized in the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And I think there's a problem with that, although my problem may not be your problem, because yes, they believed, yes, they were filled, but it wasn't supposed to stop there. Like, yes, in uh, 1993, I was born again, and in 1995, I was filled with the Spirit. So everything's good. No, what? Hold on, there's a world to reach. We need to be filled with the Spirit again and again and again. The idea of overemphasizing this two-stage thing is that you say, yes, I remember back in the days when it was all wonderful. And No, 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 no. We need a hunger for God today. We need a hunger for the Holy Spirit now. We need to lift our hearts to God and say, come, O oh Lord. How on earth are we going to tackle some of the massive issues in our city, in our parish around where we gather, apart from power, spiritual power? It's not just arguing words. Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you in word only, but in demonstrations of the Spirit's power. We need the word and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we're in trouble. If you take Peter as a case study, in Acts 2, he's this roaring, rushing wind. He's they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they go out into the street. So he's filled then. But he's filled again in Acts chapter 4. Remember in Acts 3, they pray for a lame guy. He gets healed. He jumps up, and then the authorities take them in for questioning. And it says in Acts 4 verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he kind of gives them a preach. And then they say, Whoa, who are these guys? They're uneducated fishermen, and the accents are all wrong, and what's going on? But boy, oh boy. And that, that phrase, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, means he was once again filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean then Peter, having made sure that he'd organized his life and did his Bible reading and made sure he'd repented of any sins or made sure any, you know, that he was in step with... It doesn't mean that. It means as he stepped forward, there was a rush of Holy Spirit power which led to him being bold. And they recognized, he's bold, who is this? So he was filled with the Spirit a second time. And then on a third occasion, after Peter and John had been released from prison, we read in Acts 4 again, they prayed together, the church prayed, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. That's been recorded at times of revival as well in the Hebridean revival in 1942. They had a prayer meeting and they lived in a cottage and the cottage shook. And they said, look, look, I can't do a Scottish accent. No, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that. Was shaking. Hey, you, Jimmy. It was shaking. And, and they could feel they could feel the cutlery and everything shaking and moving. Now, the point wasn't, ah, we've got to have a cutlery shaking meeting now. Everyone, we're announcing cutlery shaking meetings for you. And no, no, no. The, what they did was they went out and preached the gospel. And that's exactly the same thing. They prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all, that includes Peter, for a third time, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So 
Right here, Peter, in a short space of time, from Acts 2, 3, and 4, is filled with the Spirit, not just once, but three times. Three definite occasions where he was powerfully filled with the Spirit. And so should we. And that's my third and final point. Do you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Answer, yes, of course. Not that I'll give you the answer before the questions, but do you need... We're looking at you. <laughs> no, no, do you need... Do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Of course we do. I mean, are you a... Trin- I mean, you believe in God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's stop downgrading the third person of God. You know, he's God. The Holy Spirit is God. You know, we are Trinitarian unashamedly. I believe in the Holy So listen to Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, actually planted the congregation that I now lead in 1876. Listen to him. Now I come to notice that this question is assuredly answerable. Have you received the Holy Spirit? The notion has sprung up that you cannot tell whether you have the Holy Spirit or not. But you can. Give a man an electric shock, and I guarantee you he will know it. But if he has the Holy Spirit, he will know it much more. You may sometimes raise the question, did I ever feel the Holy Spirit in years gone by? But if you do not feel the Holy Spirit at work distinctly and perceptibly even now, then lift your heart to God for it. And pray that you may now receive him in all his fullness. Oh, says one, I thought we must always say, I hope so. I trust so. I know that jargon, says Spurgeon. I know that jargon. But men do not say, well, I hope I have an estate or I think I have a wife and children. Some of us are quite clear about these matters one way or the other. We should not live on guesswork as to daily life much less as to eternal things. Isn't that great? Typical Spurgeon. He's absolutely down the line. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, great reformed preacher of the last century. I must remind you again of the terms that are used with respect to this act of baptism with the Spirit. The great term is poured out. This, of course, suggests at once a great profusion. And this is what we must emphasize. If you like, you can describe it almost as a kind of drenching with the Spirit. This, I have long believed, is very clear from Ephesians. The thing that is being emphasized there is this gushing forth, this tremendous, particularly in times of revival. But even apart from that, it is true, and thank God for this, of individuals also. This does not only come to certain able intellectual people. It can come to anybody for the most humble soul can know and experience it too. Isn't that wonderful? This is for you, this promise. It's for you. These Ephesians, these Ephesian disciples believed in Christ whenever they believed. Doesn't matter. They believed in Christ. They were baptized as believers, and then they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, not everyone speaks in tongues or prophesies, but one thing's certain. Whether or not they received the Spirit when they believed, they certainly did when Paul laid his hands on them. And that's a kind of mark of orthodoxy in the book of Acts, that they, the people who believed in Jesus also received the Spirit. 
That's why he could write the beginning of his letter back to them, Ephesians 1 verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And later in Ephesians 5, same book, back to the same people, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And in Greek, it's be continually, go on being filled with the Spirit. Do not, he says in Ephesians 4, grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. No, but welcome him, pursue him, until you're filled with his loving power. And it's not just power, it's the love of God shed abroad. It's the Spirit witnessing with your spirit that you're a child of God. These results are wonderful because you will be a willing and eager witness for him. You will be eager to obey the word of God humbly. You're not going to be wrestling forever. No, that's not what I think. That No, that's not the, how I see it. You're going to want to live to please him. And you may receive some wonderful gifts of the Spirit too. You may be enabled to, pray, to lay your hands on the sick with compassion and see them healed. What a wonderful thing that is. And of course, together we become, as Paul says, a holy temple, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's uh, later in the book of Ephesians. That's the goal for the church. What is the church? It's the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen? Do you and I need the Spirit? Yes, we do. Let's pray, shall we? Shall we stand? Thank you, Father. Lord, we, we're just so conscious of your wonderful grace toward us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we're not just learning precepts and getting some order or discipline in our lives. We thank you that that comes. We thank you that you're a God of order and that your peace reigns mightily in us. But I pray for us as individual believers, Lord, help us to receive your Spirit both in these moments, but also individually. The application of this word is not invested in this moment of prayer now. But for you to go away, if you need to wrestle with the Scriptures, read the book of Acts through. Just read it all through once, looking for those moments where the Spirit was given, and pray, Lord, give to me. Give to me, Lord. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come even now and fill hungry hearts. Fill us, Lord, with your Spirit, we pray. We come before you and we say, Lord, we are needy on this pilgrimage that we're on in this life, in this world. We, our heart's desire, Lord, is to live for you. Our heart's desire is to obey you. And our heart's desire is that we might know you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, come 
refresh our hearts, even in this moment now. Even now, Lord, we receive from you. Come, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Pour in your peace. Pour in the, the warmth of your love, the fire of your power. Pour in, Lord, the refreshing waters of grace. Enable us, Lord, to push the seed of this word deep into good soil that it may bear fruit for you, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, for your glory, Jesus. Pray as a congregation, Lord, you'd make us bold witnesses for Christ in this area that many would come to know you that many would be healed and saved and drawn and loved by you because of what you're doing in our midst come Spirit of God refresh us we